Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Brian Albrecht, the Chief Economist at the International Center for Law and Economics, a U.S.-based policy research organization, as well as an Assistant Professor of Economics at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. He has a PhD from the University of Minnesota and has published extensively in academic journals and popular outlets, including the Boston Globe and City Journal. But Brian has also cultivated a large audience for his weekly economics newsletter on Substack, which he co-publishes with Ole Miss economics professor Josh Hendrickson called Economic Forces. Hub listeners should definitely sign up. Their newsletter is a reliable source of thought-provoking topics, interesting takes, and lots of data, theory, and evidence. I'm grateful to speak with him about a wonky set of topics, such as his views on big tech and non-compete agreements all rooted in the process of translating economic analysis into public policy. Brian, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited. I always want to talk about economics. Let's start with the underlying premise of your Substack newsletter. In your initial post in September 2020, you and your co-author, Josh Hendrickson, wrote that you were dedicating the newsletter to price theory because, as you put it, quote, economic theory, especially the price theory approach, is still a valuable tool. Let me ask a two-part question. First, what is the idea or problem that you're initially aiming to address? And second, for our listeners without economics training, what is price theory and why do you think it's important? So our Substack's a little weird in that it's really geared towards students, uh, professors, kind of people in the weeds of economics. Um, There are some policy angles, but it's really meant for students and for us to try to convey to other economists, other econ uh, adjacent uh, intellectuals, you know, how we think about the world. And one thing that we, Josh and I, really put forward as kind of central to our thinking is what we call price theory, which is an approach, one, to economic theory. So it is economic theory. It's about that there are systematic chains of cause and effect. Uh, prices adjust in ways that we can predict, in ways that we can understand, rooted in supply and demand. Uh, And that theory is really important to how we understand the world. Now, you have to understand a little bit about where we're coming from in the economics profession. Theory is kind of not, it's not the big game in town like it used to be. There's a lot of reduced form, it's called like data heavy or looking for natural experiments type of analysis. And theory is kind of taking a back seat. And so we think that that's, that's not ideal for the profession, not ideal for economic research, but also not ideal for uh, the broader policy discussion that a lot of people have in the back of their mind some implicit theory, 
but we can actually be explicit about it. And we don't need to be, doesn't need to be a ton of math. It doesn't need to be overly complicated, but we should be explicit. No, what we're talking about is a demand shift. You know, we're talking about supply changing, all the things that kind of an econ 101 uh, class would have heard about, but now we're going to kind of push it you know, to to the floor and get as much out of it as we can. You observe in the, in the newsletter that that approach to economics would have been taught at places like the University of Chicago and UCLA in the past. But as you just said, Brian, it's less present today. What happened? Why do you think it's seen its place in economics decline? That's a really good question and, and requires someone who knows more about the history of the field than I do. But I have a few conjectures, okay? One is that... Um, as one of the things that research in general pushes is for new innovative statements, right? You need to find the latest data. You need to have the newest clever theory. And so in economic theory, what that resulted in in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is just a proliferation of new theories and particularly around game theory. One of the wonderful things about game theory is you can kind of move pieces all you want to explain every new phenomenon. You could write down a new game for this company interacting with that company. Okay. And you can continually come up with new results. And so uh, the research side is all about coming up with new models. But we think that kind of on the on the just general thinking side, there's stuff rooted in the in in kind of the classics. In what we teach in 101, in intermediate micro, the things we think all economists should know, they're still valuable. But just the, the nature of doing academic research, that's not, uh, you know, know what, what is rewarded. You want to come up with something new and fresh. You can't just say, hey, look, it's just supply and demand. I'm an economic theorist. If I tried to publish a paper that just said it's supply and demand, it would never get published. I've tried to. People think it's the most trivial thing ever. And so that's the theory side. There's also been a move for other reasons towards a more data-heavy side, which is a story that has... Uh, no legitimate and I think kind of more sinister reasons, but it's kind of another another push that the profession as a whole has moved away from theory, partially in response to this idea that now what theory means around 1990, 1995 is make up any story you want. And if that's the case, well, we better ground a lot of things in data to sort out what's a good theory and what's a bad theory. I'd say, no, let's go back. Let's not allow our theory to say anything. Let's think about supply and demand. And therefore, we're kind of constrained. And today's newsletter actually was about uh, thinking about inflation and thinking about how let's not root, let's not base our explanation in greed or market power or something. It's just supply and demand. And then we can think through where inflation came from. As I alluded, the newsletter covers a breadth of topics that will be interesting to economists and, and non-economists, especially if the latter is interested in ideas and public policy. Let me give an example. I really liked your July 2022 post on market failures. You write, quote, when we say that there are no market failures in an economy, we are also saying that the economy is efficient. It's efficient in the strongest sense of the word. Surplus is maximized and God couldn't come down, move goods around and make anyone better off. Wow, that's a high bar, unquote. Why do you think we've come to see market failures virtually everywhere? And what's the risk for policymakers who come to see their role as correcting for them, as opposed to accepting that they're somewhat inevitable and that markets can often work them out on their own? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. It's really a, it's a high bar that economic theory sets kind of for itself in what's traditionally called the first welfare theorem. That is competitive markets are efficient, they maximize welfare, they maximize surplus. It's like, 
literally, I can't imagine a better situation. Like everything is going perfectly. Now, when we look to the world, it's it's obvious that that's not the world we live in. There's all sorts of problems, um, but problems only relative to this benchmark of God himself or herself, whatever your perspective is. I use that for dramatic effect. You know, no way to imagine a better world. And so it's this idea that you're comparing it against what uh, or you're making what Harold Demsetz called the Nirvana fallacy. You're comparing it to Nirvana, to perfection. Uh and so I think I have a different post on biases in economic theory, which gets at this. If you just say that this market works, economic theory and publishing is never going to think that that's an interesting result. We have, we've already known the formal results about, about when markets are efficient. They go back a long time. They go back uh, in the most formal terms to the 60s and 70s. Now it's all about finding slightly different ways that things are inefficient in a way that you maybe didn't expect, trying to be clever there. So you're trying to, you're trying to find problems. And that's the nature of kind of intellectual life. I, I think the world is going great, but there's a big push of, of intellectual effort towards finding all the problems in the world. And that's, that, that's what we need to advance as a society. So I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but there is a bias within, um, with that within academia to find a problem because when there's a problem there's a solution and therefore you can you can come in with a clever policy trick in your model in your paper that that fixes this sort of thing now that doesn't mean that there's no room for improving the world constantly improving the world i think economics can help us improve the world okay but we should be a little bit more humble about you know i because i i have a model I look at the world, the world doesn't look like my model. Well, there are two things that could be wrong. One is that the world is wrong and it should look more like my model. The other is my model could be wrong. Okay. And we're going to talk about non-competes later in my post on non-competes. I make this point. It's like, let's, let's take a second to believe that maybe I wrote down the wrong model. I thought that the labor market was, you know, the simple version of supply and demand where workers show up every day. And, you know, say that I'm going to work for you for eight hours. How much are you going to pay me? Okay, I'll, I'll work for you. No, I won't work for you. In reality, you know, the labor market is much more complex. These relationships are long term. Firms make big investments up front, you know, maybe make a return at the end. And so we just we have the wrong. If we think that the labor market looks like, you know, buying and selling corn, we have the wrong model. And so uh, we should be willing to accept that and, and kind of think about what that means for policy. As you say, Brian, we'll come to the subject of non-compete agreements in which you've been a kind of catalyst for a debate amongst economists about conventional thinking on, on the subject. But before we get there, I want to take up your thinking and writing on the subject of, of big tech and recent calls to use antitrust laws to either block them from getting bigger or even to break them up, up altogether. Late last year, for instance, you wrote an article for The Dispatch about an ongoing case involving Meta, formerly Facebook's efforts to purchase a fitness app that has received scrutiny from the Federal Trade Commission. In it, you wrote, quote, it's as if one looked at the market power wielded by Yahoo or Ask Jeeves in the early days of internet search and decided the U.S. needed antitrust enforcement to break them up, unquote. What do you think explains the tendency for many of us, including, of course, politicians, to underestimate the market's ability to eventually produce dynamic competition? What is it that gets us to focus on a static view of Facebook's market power at any given moment, rather than ask Jeeves fleeting time as an online powerhouse? Yeah, there's there's so many good uh, 
good photos, good news headlines. Nokia's monopoly. Will it ever, you know, who can ever take down Nokia? And then a month later, the iPhone comes out, right? Uh, I think there's a, you know, there's a myopia of it. Everyone's just thinking about now. It's so, this is, we need this to get through life. We need to forget the bad stuff that happened. We need to forget the past in some sense. And so we're so focused on the here and now. We can't imagine the world different in the past than it was, uh, uh, than it is today. And so there's a big emphasis on viewing the world as it is right now. And I think this this ties back to our other point about market failures. We look at the market as it is right now, but we don't think about it over time, evolving, responding to different changes and things like that. So so that's not a unique aspect of, of big tech. That's just we, we think about the big issues right now, you know. Um, and that's, you know, we think about inflation right now when, when it's a thing, even though two years ago we wouldn't have thought about it. We forget that we can go back to that world, so on and so forth. Now, big tech, why is big tech a good scapegoat? One is everyone knows about it. It's in everyone's lives. It gets much more attention than kind of its GDP footprint. Uh, you know, the amount of money generated by the Facebook of the world is minuscule compared to uh, uh, you know, other man- say like manufacturing, which gets way fewer headlines. So one thing is it's right in everyone's face. And that makes, that means it's valuable as a talking point for, uh, for politicians and, and for people who kind of benefit from, from attention, whether that means people in bureaucracy, people that are academics trying to get attention. I mean, myself included, I write about it much more than it, it, it's kind of its GDP footprint. Uh, so it's right in front of everyone. Everyone can relate to it. Everyone, when you talk about Meta, when you talk about Google, everyone knows what that is. If you start digging into, you know, this healthcare company, whether it can merge with that healthcare company, no one, no one knows that outside the particular geographic region. So it's a big point that everyone can latch on to. Um, and then there's stuff that people don't like about it. It's one of these things of a big change. People don't like change, even though they sometimes are, you know, I, yes, I like that I'm on Facebook. I use it all the time. But there's these spillover effects that I maybe don't like. We hear these stories about teen mental health. We, you know, there's loneliness stories, things like that. And so there are lots of other problems that are connected to big tech, in particular social media, you know, uh, interactions with politics, things like that. And so then we like, okay, they're bad. Therefore, everything they do is bad. I think that that's kind of a, a, a very common uh perception, at least in the policy sphere. And so they're, they're, they're useful scapegoat in the same way that, you know, any other time that something makes a news story, we can point to them as that's causing the problem. Let's do something about it. And again, pointing back to art, we got find a problem. We got to find a solution. And it just so happens to be that, oh, I, the politician, I, the FTC chairperson get to be the solution. How, how convenient is that? <laughs> We've talked about it a bit. Uh, Let's take up the subject of non-compete agreements now. You recently wrote a post challenging the growing consensus in favor of a government ban on non-compete agreements between employers and employees. There's a large movement for such reform on the grounds that it impedes worker choice and produces market distortions. The Ontario government here, for instance, has recently moved in this direction. But you're not so sure it's a good idea. Why? So... A funny thing about that post is I, I sense that there was a growing consensus that people, at least online, were against non-competes, thought that this ban was a good idea. The moment I uh, pushed publish, 
right after I uh, I sent it, someone post sent me a, a a survey from a few hours earlier. It was posted a few hours earlier of top economists done by Chicago Booth, and that survey, uh, which is the closest thing we have to a regular survey of economists, it's not all economists. It's very selected, top of the tier showed a lot more skepticism, a lot more uncertainty, more in line with what I believe than, you know, people that are really vocal online saying we know non-competes are bad, therefore it's justified to ban them. So I so I would start with it that there's uncertainty. Some people are very sure that uh what the policy sphere or what the policy uh impact will be. I'm a little bit less sure and I think that that's actually where the modal economist is. Uh and, and part of that difference as I get into in my newsletter is you know, I think that there's good theoretical reasons, even if we don't get the best measurement of what happens, there are good theoretical reasons that we would expect these sorts of non-competes. And I lay out the traditional one, although there are a few different ones. You hire someone today, you need to train them for them to be valuable to you. Well, you don't want them to, the moment you train them, for them to leave to another competitor. Otherwise, you're not going to get a return on your investment. And so you need to have ways to kind of tie that relationship up. You know, sometimes companies do it through, uh, you know, bonuses in the future or vested stock options, things like that. But going back to our point about it's not just hiring today, you know, like buying corn on the on uh, the commodity trade. Uh, the, there's this longer term contract that we're that we should think of these as being part of a, of a longer term relationship between workers and em- employers. Now, against that kind of standard theory, there have been really good papers digging into what happens to wages when states ban these non-competes, and they find rises in wages uh, after the ban goes into effect, which means that implicitly the, the, the non-competes were holding down wages. But these are relatively new papers. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons that most economists really express a lot of uh, uncertainty about this. There are a few papers that are really well done. But relative to other policy debates, like around, you know, what's the effect of R&D incentives on, on R&D or what's the effect of the minimum wage? The literature on non-competes is very, very small. And I think there's a lot of things to be worked out in the technical literature, which I'm not, I, I don't contribute to that. I don't claim to be an expert on non-competes and not an expert on, on labor markets more generally. But I am someone who comes with a healthy, I think, a healthy skepticism to kind of the growing consensus on a lot of dimensions. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Your post on non-competes is one of my favorite on the site because it's not merely an economic analysis of a particular issue. It's also, as you put it, quote, a meta post about policy and how I think about moving from the science of economics to the art of policy, unquote. What's the broader point you're making here, Brian? And what's your theory about the translation of economics into policymaking? Yeah, that it's you'll see in a lot of our posts, there's kind of this more meta 
point about how we think about, you know, there, there's a narrow topic we want to talk about, but then we think it has implications for how we think about how we talk about other things. And so this was the extreme example where I'm upfront saying, this is actually a meta post. You're not, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail of the literature on non-competes, but it's really about, I'm not debating that. I'm saying, let's take that. And then what does that mean for policy? And, and it's a real, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's this going back to our point about the model and the world not lining up. Is the world wrong? Is it my model wrong? How do we sort out which, which one it is? How do we find improvements in kind of a naive, just keep testing theory, uh, you know, in, you know, high school science. So just generate a hypothesis, test the theory, then you'll find the right theory. And that sort of a world, this isn't a problem, but in real science, you know, in the social sciences, especially, but even in the biological sciences and, and the physical sciences where I came from, it's not that neat. And so we need, it takes more of an art to go from to generate theory and then to think about how that how that plays over to policy. Um, so I, I, I stress in that newsletter two aspects of my thinking. Uh, one is that I circling back, I'm I think economic theory gives us a lot of insight. I think it, it's proven useful in situation after situation, okay, that we try to explain in our newsletter, but it's, it's more just like it's an internal feeling I have based on you know, spending the last decade plus uh, really devoting my my life's work to, to economics. So I think theory is important. And it, it helps us think through things and think through where we're missing measurements, maybe, you know, what could be going wrong with our just Go out and measure it. Just go out and find the experiment and measure it. Well, there's lots of things that we need to, to think about, and theory can help us sort through that. So I put, relative to other economists, I put more weight on the theory that, you know, it could be disproven, but the idea that from economic theory that people sign these because it's beneficial and not because they're being kind of exploited. I think that we should, we should start with the point that if people continually do something, that there's some value to it. The other thing that is, is kind of a, a corollary of that is I think if policies are in place over a long enough time and there's feedback, so I'm not talking about slavery, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, oppression or war. I, I'm saying in situations where there's feedback, like there is feedback between workers and employers, okay, and, and across many employers, across many employees, and we see the same relationship, maybe there's a reason for it. It may be, it may be a bad thing and we can improve the world by changing policy. But I shouldn't start from the premise that workers day in and day out are signing an agreement that is harmful to them. Okay, I, sh I should be humble enough that I don't know the ins and outs of this relationship. I'm not measuring it well enough. Okay, uh, I'm not measuring it well enough so that, you know, there's something that I'm missing. And so I, I, I put a little bit more emphasis, actually maybe a lot more emphasis on on things that People day in and day out have been signing, have been, and the economy's going well overall. People seem to be, you know, incomes are going up. All the things in the U.S. that we think are, they're not as good as they could be. Technological progress is down. Business dynamism is down until recently, but the economy is still chugging along. And so I'm, I'm a little bit more of a um, Chesterton fence respecter. If there's a fence there, I don't know what it's for. Before I tear it down, I should at least tr grapple with you know, what it's doing. And the serious people in this field are grappling with, I don't mean to imply that the researchers are not, but some of the, I think some of the policy translated to policy, they see this thing that seems on the face of it to be destructive to workers. 
well, it's destructive. I, it's obvious. It's called a non-compete. It's in the title. You can't compete. We want competition. Therefore, get rid of it. Well, let's take a second. Let's think about it. And so I'm, I'm not even saying in my, in that post that we shouldn't have state level bans or, uh, you know, courts shouldn't rule against these sort of agreements and call them, uh, you know, unconscionable and, and void them. I'm just saying, I don't think we're there for a national ban in the United States across, you know, 330 million people across all labor contracts besides a few tiny exceptions, like for business owners. I've just not, I don't have the confidence to to overturn policy that way, and I don't have the confidence to overturn other policies that kind of are more in my. It's not a right left thing or a free market anti free market. I don't have that confidence to get rid of the income tax. Like just get rid of the income tax tomorrow. It's like, well, we've had it for a long time. The economy's done pretty well. Maybe it's actually a pretty good way of getting, uh, you know, getting revenue for the government to do the things that it needs to do. I'm just I'm not a radical in, in that way. Let me take up this point because I think it's such a an interesting line of argument. In a way, a kind of application of Burkean ideas or Burkean insights to an economic framework. As you say, Brian, you, you write in the post, quote, that you place weight on the benefits of existing agreements or institutions, by which I interpreted to be saying that you assume that arrangements or institutions that have persisted over time are likely efficient or they would have been scrapped at some point. Let me put a, a two-part question to you. First, do you want to elaborate a bit on the limiting principles that you would apply to this way of thinking about economics? And second, on the question of efficient, is that the point that you're making, that institutions or arrangements that have persisted over time are efficient in a pure or sole economic sense, or do you mean efficient in a kind of broader political economy sense? Great questions. So on efficiency... So we started this conversation by saying that one notion, it's very confusing, economists use efficiency, I was sloppy on this. One notion of efficiency is is very strong, as we said, is, you know, God himself couldn't rearrange things. But sometimes efficiency is a little bit weaker sense, Pareto efficiency is a technical term, is actually a very weak standard. I guess the way I would think about it, and if I would rewrite the post, I would make it more explicit is, they can't be that bad, Okay. I could imagine situations that would improve it, but if it was, it's kind of the $20 bill on the sidewalk sort of thing. It, you know, if, if, if everyone claims that there's $20 bills lying all over the sidewalks, well, people's self-interest, people's rational action will pick those up. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a $20 bill on the sidewalk, but what it means is if someone says, hey, I know where a $20 bill is, but first pay me $10, I'm going to be a little bit hesitant, Right. You know, that, that there's, I'm going to take a higher burden than just someone saying that there's a $20 bill on the sidewalk before I believe that there's a $20 bill, especially if they, you know, have some incentive like politicians do for being less than honest about things. Um, so, so, so yes, it's a very Burkean idea. It's, uh, you know, I brought up Chesterton's fence, similar, similar concept that we should be respecting of these, uh, institutions. They may not be the best thing possible. But, but they have some value and we should understand them. Now, what's the limiting principle? As always, the limiting principle in economics has to do with your outside option. What are your other things you could be doing? What is your exit option, to use the term uh, from uh, exit loyalty and voice, or I always mix up what the order is from Albert Hirschman. Um, if you can exit, then it must, then, then that that's a feedback mechanism that says that, Okay, the fact that you're not exiting tells us something. 
Okay. So uh, if I go to, if I go to one coffee shop day in and day out, okay. And the, and the next door to it is another coffee shop. I can't say it's the best coffee shop in the world that I go to, but, but it's better than the other one. And it's probably pretty good all considered. Okay. The, uh, the, it's good for me. I like it because I keep going there day in and day out. Now, if I'm in the middle of nowhere and that's the only coffee shop in town, we should be less, uh, we should be less confident that I, you know, at how much I value going to that coffee shop. So it's all about your ability to exit, your ability to provide feedback or, and say no, if that's not the case. And so in markets, generally, we think of this as a very strong force. You know, if I don't like targets, uh, you know, prices and qualities on groceries, I go across the street to Walmart, I get, I get their prices and their quality. And there's this disciplining action, uh, that means that when I keep going to a store again and again, we expect them to be relatively efficient, to do things relatively well, to be providing relatively good quality. Now, anyone who's been in business knows that there's always room for improvement. These companies can lower costs, they can improve quality, and that's what the business is constantly trying to do. But me as the outsider, I shouldn't come in and say, Target's doing it terribly. Well, if they're doing it so terribly, why are they making you know money in it and out every single year? I should be a little bit more hesitant again to that. Now, where do we not have feedback? Slavery is the extreme example of, of no feedback, any sort of oppression, you know, and, and as, you know, political frameworks move from very oppressive to very free, they move closer to the market. And so in that post, the line that everyone uh, seemed to skip was this idea that in democratic uh, societies where people can vote, people can respond in courts, people can move across state lines, then we put a little bit more weight on this uh, on, on this principle of, of respecting the Chesterton fence. Now, is that a limiting principle? No, it's about trade-offs. It's not about across this line, I, I don't respect uh, this idea. On the other side, I do respect it. It's about, you know, on the margin, and I'm, I'm going to think a little bit more about, you know, what is the benefit of, of this policy when I, I see that people can move. In the same way that I would to use one more analogy, you know, uh, I, I think that, and I think there's good empirical evidence on this, suburbs where people can freely move and build houses and suburbs around them, those governments tend to be very efficient in the sense of being able to produce things at, at low cost because they are, they're in a tough state of competition. Now, state, states are smaller, uh, sorry, states are, are harder, they're competing less. Rural areas have to compete less. Uh, places that have a particular strength that can't be replicated, things like Silicon Valley, you know, San Francisco, that you can't just go, you, you can't just go to another city and replicate, uh, you can't exit to another city and replicate San Francisco. We expect this disciplining force to be weaker. A lot of insight there, Brian. I would, I would just say in parentheses for listeners that the University of Toronto philosopher Joseph Heath's work on reconceptualizing efficiency to account for arrangements that produce accommodation or settlement within a pluralistic society, you know, i.e. a kind of political economy form of efficiency is, uh, I think, an also an interesting way to think about your broader point here, which is we ought to be a bit hesitant to assume we, we can simply discard pre-existing institutions and arrangements that have managed to withstand scrutiny over over a protracted period of time in, as you say, a democratic market economy. Can I add one point on this? I think that's absolutely right. And, and, I, and we 
we as economists need to be better about thinking about these political constraints. I have a paper also with Josh Hendrickson. It's the one I cite in that newsletter uh, with Josh Hendrickson and Alex Salter of this idea that um, one thing that societies need is they need to not be invaded. They need to not be overthrown by outside societies. Now, we don't think about that so much in the U.S. and Canada today, but throughout history, that's a big thing. And so any uh, any analysis of, of policy, any analysis of how governments are doing in the past needs to understand that that's a real constraint. And our definition of efficiency must respect that, that, oh, yes, I have this idea that we should we, they should have done their tax system differently is what we stress in the post or in the in the, in the post. I'm writing too many newsletters in the academic article in the Journal of Macroeconomics. Uh, yes, we have this idea that they should use their tax system differently. But if that meant that they got invaded by Viking raiders, well, that doesn't, that's not a, that's not an improvement. And so in no sense is that an efficient, you know, a more efficient change. So we need to respect this. If you have an internal revolution because your society is, is so unequal and people think it's so unfair, we need to account for that. Now, this can be oversold. You know, everything could be in the name of protecting law and order, but we should at least uh, uh, consider it. This conversation about the interaction between theory, evidence, and policy in the political arena is something that you've written about, particularly the extent to which a lot of current political debates seem more rooted in normative differences than competing interpretations of the facts. In a world like this, what's the role of a policy-oriented economist? Do you simply have to come to terms with normative arguments if you actually want to be part of where the action is? That's a that's a, that's a great question, and it's something that I constantly am am thinking about because I'm a, a person. So every policy that I'm thinking about comes with normative baggage, but I hope it's not only normative baggage. That there's a lot of room for us to debate the positive, to debate what is, what are the causal mechanisms, um, and, and so if we can get some agreement on that or or more agreement on that, maybe we can leave the uh, normative disagreements aside. Now that doesn't mean that. You know, I, I don't imagine that I, I can ever truly do that. But I think really the, the real benefit, the comparative advantage of economists is on the positive side. So I want to stress that. I want to stress, you know, how are markets working? What are the effects of prices on quantities? Things like that. And then, but at the same time, I mean, economists tend to be kind of, and I, I fall prey to this, economists tend to be kind of utilitarians, definitely consequentialists in the sense that we, you know, we're caring about how, how, People interpret them. We're welfareists. We care about how the individual views it. You know, the indiv- throughout this conversation, I've said that the person likes Target because they keep going back to Target, right? And so the standard is always their perspective. Um, and so that sneaks into everything I do. I do think that there are cases where I, I'm ready to argue for that as a normative benchmark, in particular around antitrust, which is an area that I work a lot on. You know, other people want to bring in issues of fairness. I just think they're now we're going back to an empirical matter. I think they're unoperationalizable. I don't think you, courts can make a coherent understanding of fairness. And so I'm going to argue for looking at things like economic efficiency and what happens to costs, what happens to prices, things like that, as a, as just a practical uh, solution to these broader debates. I don't. I if you personally th- put more weight on fairness than I do, I, I I'm not talking about that. I'm thinking about policy. How should we incorporate that? Final question. I want to ask about your participation in the public square. You've effectively used social media and now Substack to build up a considerable voice 
in economic and policy debate. Do you want to reflect a bit on your experience and what, if any, advice you'd have for new professors or graduate students about engaging on these platforms? Have I, have I spent an efficient amount of time on Twitter? I don't know, maybe too much, but but it's been a, it's been a real benefit for me. Twitter has been. Now, I entered Econ Twitter ten years ago when it was a very different thing. Elon Musk didn't know it. All these other things were changing, and so I entered in a sphere where it was relatively small, and there were there were few people on it, uh, and and so I was able to interact with people that I wouldn't have otherwise as a as a grad student. But I I still think that there's value um, for all economists who who think. I I will never tell someone they should get on Twitter if they don't want to get on Twitter. But if you're if you're debating, I think that the benefit of being on Twitter or writing on Substack or a blog or something is larger than you think it is, especially if you stick with it for a while. So I'd encourage uh, traditional kind of academic types, people who are kind of more intellectual to get more involved on that for two reasons. One, it refines your thinking. I know it's kind of silly. Twitter is this short form, you know, shallow, some would say thing, but you really do have to kind of engage on a constant, uh, on a constant basis in a way that you don't just reading books in your, you know, in your house alone or, or teaching to your students. The other, I think, is trying to get better at explaining things. I've taught a lot of students. I've taught large classes, small classes. Um, and I think that discussing with people, it's just so easy for me now to forget what it was like to not know any of this stuff. Um, and and when I'm up in front of the classroom, people are just staring at me with blank faces. Do they understand anything? Are they just bored to death? Or do they like, you know, we can't quite tell. But on, you know, going back to feedback mechanisms, Twitter kind of, if you get engagement, gives you directly feedback that you're being unclear. Now, there are people, you'll be perfectly clear sometimes that people will say that you're not being clear because they're not interested in your argument. If you find good, you know, good faith interlocutors, you'll get this kind of feedback. And I've really found that with with uh, Substack, a little bit longer form. We write about 1,500, 2,000 words per post, a little bit longer form, but not, I can't just drone on for for an hour uninterrupted like I do in the classroom. In the, in the classroom, they don't have an outside, they don't have an exit option after they've sound, signed up, right? And so I don't have the feedback to be efficient. Uh, but Substack, if they're not paying attention, boom, they can go to the next spot. They won't share it, things like that. And so you get you get a little bit more feedback that you're being uh, uh, you're being somewhat <laughs> concise and 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 clear in your explanation. And I'll add one more, uh, and that is that yes, you've maybe been studying this stuff for so long, but not everyone has. And it's I think it's valuable to go back to the basics, to circle back to the very beginning of our conversation. Economists, academics get so into their little spin on on the debate, their little spin on how to make things different, but they forget that most people just don't know basic supply and demand. And so I think it's worthwhile to remind people and remind yourself of, of these intricacies that you, you you easily forget when you're working on your current you know paper that you're trying to publish in an academic journal. Well, those in search of such a reminder, I'd encourage you to check out Brian's Substack newsletter called Economic Forces. Brian Albrecht, the chief economist at the International Center for Law and Economics and an assistant professor of economics at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.